So good afternoon and welcome to the Institute for Government for the latest in our sort of series of Brexit events. If you're tweeting, hashtag IFG Brexit. So uh, we've looked at Brexit from various perspectives, but we thought it was about time to ask a rather important question. Is business ready for Brexit? Um, this week uh, on Monday we published our assessment of where we were with six months to go and while there were some sort of dollops of uh, green or amber over both the negotiations of the withdrawal agreement and the uh, legislation that government needs to start putting through uh, to get us ready for Brexit potentially on 29th March 2019, um, there was a lot of red in the final uh, assessment which was on the readiness for no deal in particular, uh, looking at the implementation side. Uh, so it seems like a very good occasion to find out whether that assessment is too pessimistic, uh, how business feels, uh, how much help the succession of technical notices that the government has started publishing since August have been to our business audience. So. We're going to try and keep this quite pacey and lively, uh, so we'll have a bit of discussion on the panel, uh, no set presentations, uh, and then we're going to open up for questions and debate from the floor, and obviously also very interesting perspectives you want to bring uh, to our panel. So I'm just going to quickly run down our panel, and then we will pitch it open. So I'm Jill Rutter, I'm Programme Director of the Brexit Institute for Government. On my far left, William Bain, Policy Advisor of the British Retail Consortium. Sonali Parekh, Head of Policy of the Federation of Small Businesses, Adam Marshall, Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce, Pauline Bastidon, the Head of European Policy at the Freight Transport Association, and finally on my far right, Joe Owen, uh, Associate Director, works with uh, me on Brexit and is our sort of lead go-to person on all things implementation. Um, so what we're going to do is just kick off with a question. So I'm going to take this slightly sort of randomy order. Um, Adam, is business ready for Brexit? <laughs> I can give you the short answer, Jill, or the very long answer. There are people who speculate this discussion yes. only needs to be five minutes, and then we can just have sandwiches. But anyway, uh, the, the short and immediate answer is no. Um, survey after survey of businesses, our own included, show that there's a very significant portion of firms out there that are not yet either prepared or preparing for the potential outcome of Brexit. And I think we need to look at that in some detail and take it quite seriously. Um, I, I divide businesses up into three tribes, really, uh, when it comes to Brexit. The first are the proactive, who are busy putting in place contingency plans uh, and ensuring that they are ready because they are directly affected immediately. The second uh, are, are the ones I call the watch and waiters. They're the people who are actively seized of the fact that Brexit is going to affect them, but aren't moving resources away from their core business right now because if they did, perhaps they'd fail to fulfill an order or fail to deliver a service that they're providing and need to keep focusing on the business until they have something concrete to refer to. And my third tribe are what I call the ostriches. Now that might be slightly unkind, but there are lots of businesses out there who, due to fatigue over the past three years from all the noise around this, have disengaged from it entirely. Uh, 
Now, the proactive businesses include a lot of our largest and most internationally active firms of all sizes, those that provide a huge amount of added value in the economy. We have to be careful of that. The ostriches involve a lot of small firms who are UK only and don't believe ultimately they'll be impacted. So there are three different groups. Um, not that many are preparing right now, but those that are are taking a sort of no regrets approach and saying, I need to get myself ready for any outcome, and that means being ready for a worst case scenario not anything in between because otherwise they'd be pouring resources into a variety of different possible outcomes. So that's the panorama as we see it because we represent firms from the very largest across the country through to the smallest. And Adam, what is their worst case scenario? It was quite interesting. Last week we had the Economist for Free Trade saying actually, you know, world trade deal, uh, all very good and there'd be lots and lots of side deals with the EU. Are people assuming as indeed the government's technical notices do, that there'd be loads of side deals. Uh, so the worst case isn't really the worst case, or are they just assuming complete breakdown of relations with the EU? Well, I think that the various scenarios that we discuss in rooms like this are very Westminster bubble. They don't translate out to lots of our businesses. People aren't talking about WTO in great detail. They aren't talking about a no deal with a few side agreements in any great detail. That's just not what's on their radar at the moment. The thing that really divides businesses is from some sort of negotiated outcome, and they have different opinions on what that should include, and a messy and disorderly Brexit. The fear of messy and disorderly and the potential impacts on their businesses really worries and motivates quite a lot of people. Okay, so Sonali, we've heard that uh, Adam is putting probably your membership into the ostrichy category. Is that right? Is that actually a sensible approach if you're small businesses? What are you telling people they need to be doing to I, be getting ready? I think it's fair to say that if there were to be a no deal with no transition period, there would be a disproportionate impact upon our smaller businesses in particular because they're the least able to prepare for such an extreme scenario. And indeed, we've recently put a survey out in the field and we can verify that position with some really good quantitative evidence. Basically, 48% of our smaller businesses feel that there'd be negatively impacted by a no deal scenario with no transition period in terms of their short-term business continuity. And if we look at the population um, of those smaller businesses that are trading with the EU, that percentage leaps up to 66%. And if we look at those smaller businesses that have employed an EU 27 member of staff since the EU referendum, that becomes 61%. And when we've asked this specific question, have you planned for the most extreme scenario? So that's no deal with no withdrawal agreement, no political declaration on the future relationship between the UK and the EU, no transition period, crucially. Only 14% of our membership have planned, with a further 41% believing that they would be impacted, but not yet having started their planning process. Okay, and what about um, William? We're a nation of shoppers. Uh, if consumers notice any disruption, they'll notice it first if things aren't on the shelf. So what sort of uh, state of preparedness is there in the retail sector? Well, we represent 70% of the UK groceries market, but also online retailers, um, high street retailers of clothing, textiles, cosmetics, chemicals. And I think it's fair to say that the larger companies on a multinational mm. basis have been looking at options mm. like, you know, can you source certain goods from elsewhere? What are the implications in terms of duties and taxation? Um, can these be mitigated um, with a sort of contingency program? But for the smaller and uh, medium-sized retailers, uh, as Adam said, it, it's hard enough at the moment in the high street just keeping your head above water. 
and having the ability to uh, do the known unknown forecasting. I mean, what are the duties going to be? Is it going to be MFN tariffs or will the government reduce tariffs to zero? What is going to happen on things like uh, VAT for companies exporting goods to France and to Germany, or even changing stock over there? Um, how will we be able to import uh, goods from the rest of the world while maintaining the duty privileges that we have at, have at the moment? So all of these are entirely unplannable for mm. until we have a decision, or indeed no decision. And Pauline. Uh, one of the other ways in which this potentially manifests itself is problems in getting goods in trucks across borders. Uh, we've heard quite a lot of the sort of crisp-railing solution of waving things through, and it'll be all right because you know we'll let trucks come in or whatever. So, what are your members worried about? So we we cover a very wide range of, of companies from transport operators to logistics organizers and retailers and manufacturers. And I think it's fair to say that the level of preparedness, of awareness, varies greatly uh, from one company to the other. So indeed we have some that are really on the case and trying to do as much as they can, extremely proactive, we'll have meetings with government every day uh, to, mm. to go through the implications. And there are some, some ostriches, that's true. In, in my experience, it's very often because they haven't actually fully understood what the implications would be for them. So what we tell them is, for instance, you, you were talking about uh, border delays. The implication of border delays will not just be felt on international transport. They will be felt in Kent, probably the whole, you know, southeast of England, really. Um, and in regions surrounding ports uh, pretty much everywhere. And indeed, if you, if you listen to what uh, the port of Rotterdam um, in the Netherlands has been saying, you would see that even there, even though they are very much used to you know, trading with the rest of the world and so on, uh, and customs checks, etc., there's still, um, of course, a worry about how this is going to be, to be managed. But I would say the biggest issue I see, really, and which is perhaps something, you know, when, when we can push members and say, okay, do this, do that to prepare, we, we try and do it. But there's one area uh, in relation to the movement of, of goods, not just by trucks, by the way, which companies don't, cannot really do that much on their own. And this is the issue of market access for transport. Mm -hmm. So what do we do if suddenly air freight, uh, road haulage, international road haulage, and uh, rail freight become largely unavailable and extremely constrained because of restrictions to market access. How can you keep trading under these conditions, knowing that the alternatives would be uh, unaccompanied trailers or containers, so this is much slower, first of all, so not really adapted to just-in-time uh, production models or you know, perishable products, the express sector, and so on. Um, and you still need to have people who are going to pick up the goods at ports. Um, there is a massive driver shortage um, in, in the UK. Uh, how are we going to handle that if there are significant restrictions on immigration from low-skilled workers? Uh, and equally, we tell them, in order to manage border disruptions, you need to uh, plan for warehousing space. Uh, so finding the space is difficult enough, and not everyone will want to commit until they are fairly sure this is going to be needed. But also bear in mind that a quarter of the warehouse operatives are EU nationals at the moment. So you do need people still. Not everything is automatized. 
So how are we going to find all these people in the space of six months? So I would say regardless of the level of preparedness of business, there are issues that need to be addressed anyway, which are out of control of industry. Um, and then one other thing that really worries us is the state of preparedness also on the European side. And there you have a different type of ostrich. It's the ostrich they think, oh, well, that's going to impact the UK. Uh, I'm not next to the UK, or I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to be that impacted. I won't really feel uh, the, the, the impact of, of a new deal uh, Brexit if it comes to that. Um, and that's extremely worrying, uh, of course, because you know a lot of the checks would be taking place on the on the other side anyway. Uh, you need the two parties to be to be to be ready uh, when you're shipping things. And of course, you have the transport companies themselves. And if you just take road haulage, about 80% of the volumes are transported by non-British companies. So, Joe, quite a lot of these things, as Pauline says, are problems for companies, but not for companies to sort out. They're more things that governments, either here or in Europe, have to sort out. So if you look at, you did our excellent assessment of readiness, um, published earlier this week, massively trailed. Um, <laughs> so how is government getting on in its preparations? Yeah, well, if you look at engagement, it's kind of the same problem with the rest of Brexit. You couple a massive scale of the task with ridiculous politics, makes it very difficult to do. So we've got formal structures in place for engagement. Um, there's the business advisory group, aka the BAG. Um, there were a few powwows in Chevening with some big cheeses talking to the Secretary of State. And then there's kind of endless roundtables, but at least earlier in the process when we were speaking to people you know, over the last year or so, the criticism tends to be that government goes to these things um, in listening mode. So you kind of have a sort of Churchill the dog moment where officials are just nodding along as businesses sort of lay their concerns out, but there's not much coming back the other way. And one of the things we said in a report that we did in June was that we felt that departments, um, at least in a lot of areas and for a lot of the last two years, have been unable to answer some of the most pressing questions for business, which might be a reflect, it might reflect a, the fact that um, they don't know the answers. There's a huge amount of detail covering a huge number of areas, but more likely it was because officials didn't really have cover to be able to answer some of those questions. And I think you saw that from the NAO report that was published last week on DEFRA, uh, where they said that DEFRA have been trying to engage, I think, around chemicals quite a lot, but have been told by DEXU that they can't go out yet, they can't do that formally, and to hold their horses. So you see the sort of interplay of the politics with the ability to actually start to go out and answer some of these questions for business where they have the answer. But that has changed. Uh, obviously, the technical notices are out, which should provide government a bit more headroom to start engaging. Um, and there have been some examples of where engagement has really improved. I think lots of people point to the, the border planning group uh, that's been set up as starting to, even through non-disclosure agreements, start to talk to some of the, the organisations that are most affected in the sort of trade process uh, and around citizens' rights with the Home Office. The Home Office were pretty happy for anyone who had a view to come in and tell them what they wanted from the new system and try and reflect that. So they've, they've done bits of engagement, but the big challenge has been getting the sort of political clearance to start properly engaging and obviously the scale of the task and the manners to do. So, so I'm very keen to hear from our panel how helpful they think these technical notices 
have been. Um, we've pointed out to government that both the Irish government and the Dutch government seem to have much better websites on preparing for Brexit. I think the Irish are doing a big launch of, uh, of an updated website today. Uh, at least that's what they told us. Maybe it's been diverted by other things. Um, but have these technical notices given your members the answers they need or given the constraints of the uncertainty, have they done as good a job as they, they could have done? Sonali, are your members all you know, <laughs> hanging on Dominic Raab's every word and downloading the technical notices the moment they come out? I think it's fair to say that that's not the case. Um, they are a starting point. We called upon, you know, we mm. called for more support mm. from government to help smaller businesses in particular to prepare and the technical <sighs> notices are the first part in a longer mm. journey. Um, we do now want to see particularly some of the most uh, pertinent notices for our EU traders, for example, in relation to customs arrangements and VAT. Um, and UK tariff codes and more generally border related issues translated into flowcharts about what smaller businesses would need to think about when and crucially when is the point that actual action would need to be taken because the notices um, are pretty clear at the moment you know you need to start to think about this mm. but say if you're a trader that's um, uh, only ever exclusively traded with the EU, you wouldn't necessarily have an economic operator registration identifier mm. number. Mm. And they're not saying rush out and get one now. They're saying this is something you're going to need to think about if over the next couple of months, um, we have Salzburg obviously now, um, we have EU council meetings coming up. If the likelihood of a disorderly no deal scenario increases, um, what is the point at which actual action needs to be taken? Mm. So William, do you think same sort of reaction or? Well, yeah, I mean, they've, they've been pretty declaratory, Jill, about things that we knew already, um, but they haven't told us anything we didn't know already. Uh, the one encouragement that we got was that in terms of uh, the VAT notice, uh, there was a big win uh, that uh, BRC and BCC and others have been campaigning on in terms of deferred accounting. And at least that avoids having to make an upfront payment at the border before you can take receipt of goods if you're a business. So that was, I think, the one win that business got out of it. But look, we don't know things like when do you have to make a, f a customs declaration? At what point in the process of the transit of goods does that declaration have to go in if that's what we end up with? There's nothing in the notices that gives us any of that detail. And that's fundamental to how companies who are buying ingredients and products and goods uh, from the rest of Europe uh, have to function by. Um, so I think that they've been declaratory, um, but there's been an incredible number of unanswered questions that have come from them. So, Adam, where are you on these? Do you think they're useful? Um, I think they range from the crystal clear to the maddeningly obtuse. Um, I'd cite the same example uh, as Willie on import VAT. Uh, the point on postponed accounting, and it went even further than we'd asked. We'd said, let's, get, let's keep the current system for the EU of quarterly postponed accounting for VAT. They then extended it to imports from the rest of the world which is an improvement on business's current situation. It was very clear, it was very precise, and it wasn't very long. And that's something that businesses can take to the bank and plan on. Contrast that with the notice on civil disputes, which basically said, dunno, go get legal advice. And, and that was more or less it. Uh, so what we're telling the government is that precision is what is required. There is quite a lot, as you say, declaratory statements being made. And this is a typical Whitehall and Westminster problem, which is if we need to give business an answer to something, let's give them 100 pages of waffle 
Uh, businesses aren't looking for a waffle. They're looking for the one bit of signal in the noise that allows them to plan effectively. And they want to have something they can monetize and take to the bank. Um, I think we need that precision because we need to combat two tendencies amongst businesses. One that I referred to earlier is apathy amongst those who are in the wait and see camp who might need to prepare very quickly, deal or no deal, for changes to the way they trade. The other though, which is talked about less, which is very important, is the possibility of hyper-compliance which is a very big national industry in the United Kingdom. We're very good at gold plating and hyper-complying with things. And we've seen an army of self-appointed experts spring up, going out and saying to businesses, I will charge you a significant sum of money to help you plan for something, even though I know no more than you do about what it is that we're planning for. So I think the precision of those notices and anything else where a decision is within the UK government's own control is what companies need to see. And some of the technical notices are about what happens if there's no deal. I'd like to see more information about what the UK government is going to do on things that are in its control, regardless of the ultimate UK-EU agreement, because that is where businesses will get the certainty they need to press the green button on deferred investments and so much more. So, Pauline, uh, you look at the sort of both sides of the uh, uh, you know, UK and things coming in for the country. Is any government doing a good job in preparing its business for Brexit? Is there anywhere you would be looking and saying, actually, these are the people who are taking the gold star for a helpful, business-friendly way of presenting information? So I think there's a big difference between what you see in the public domain and what you get from officials in more trusted conversations. Uh, what you see in the public domain, so if you take the New Deal notices, well, first of all, I have to stress, we're still waiting for the ones on transport. Um, only a few have been published. We are not going to learn anything, mm. I hope. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think the general public and certainly companies uh, and, and individuals within companies that don't really pay attention to these sort of things will uh, learn, learn something about it. And that's perhaps the use of the notices. The other thing is that when we say something, you know, there's hopefully they trust us, but it's a completely different thing when it's written black and white in a notice from, from government. So from that point of view, it's also helpful to have things spelled out. Uh, but don't forget, there have been EU notices which were published a, a while back, uh, of course. Um, in terms of the precision of the notices themselves, well, I think they're a bit of a dilemma for the government because they don't want to spook anyone by sort of saying, oh, you know, no deal is really likely, that's what you need to focus on. Um, I think they need to be careful not to suggest that essentially it will be very difficult also for government and therefore there might be choices that will have to be made between compliance and, you know. I mean, there, there are very difficult things that obviously they will not want to be, to be saying. Um, and of course, we're in a negotiation, so they don't want to jeopardize that. Um, so that's where the uh, discussions that are more in depth, be they with ministers or, or, or civil servants, can be can be helpful. Um, now, the big problem we have is that the no deal notices, the information available on Gov.uk, uh, a lot of the messages that have come from Brussels, while they might be clearly understood by those who exactly know how it would work with the rest of the world, or you know. Are they really understood by companies that have no experience at all of trading with the rest of the world? Mm. Um, when, you, when you talk to, for instance, um, transport companies and tell them, well, the, there are new requirements since 9-11, you would need to have um, 
security and, and safety declaration on top of your uh, customs declaration, uh, you will be legally responsible for that. Not that you necessarily have to do it, but do you know how? I, I assume the majority don't even know what you're talking about. Then if you, if you go on and, you know, what you were saying about uh, when do you do the customs declarations, all of these things, sometimes it seems to be an assumption from government uh, that as long as you've got intermediaries that can take care of that, the wider business community doesn't need to know anything about the details. Will there be enough capacity in the intermediary sector to handle all of these things? Um, and then if I, if I go back to, to transport, I mean, it's, it's pretty essential because you can't, clearly you can't trade unless you can actually transport the, the products. Uh, I'd be surprised in, in this room if I asked how many of you actually know um, that there will be severe restrictions to the movement of planes, trucks and trains uh, under a pure no deal situation. Uh, I'd, I'd be happy to see if, you know, if, you, if you're aware of all the details, if you could raise your hand. Yeah. So how many have heard of the ECMT permits for road haulage? Mm -hmm. Ah, that's very good actually, <laughs> I'm surprised. I think we might have six or seven hands a bit more in the, in the room. Uh, that's a lot better than what we usually get. Um, what that means is that in a pure New Deal situation, we would only be able to offer market access for around um, 2 to 5%. Uh, of the trucks that are crossing the border today. So obviously, uh, government has a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and we work with them on, on that, and we're very much hoping that we'll never get to that. But you also have to be realistic and see, okay, what, what do we have today? What can we reliably plan for and, and take into account? Um, and certainly businesses are being asked to make a lot of gambles um, at the moment. And I don't think that the New Deal notices on their own are necessarily helping them to, to do that. I think the point about Pauline is really interesting. I thought it was very striking in the uh, report on DEFRA that uh, the National Audit Office referred to DEFRA taking the risk that 10% of food exports wouldn't be covered by at their ability to, to have agreed export certification processes. So they were prioritizing the top countries accounted for 90% of exports. And I thought, well, that's only a DEFRA risk if DEFRA is offered to underwrite it. Right. Otherwise, it's a risk that DEFRA is happily passing on to the businesses that depend on that. Is there any indication that government is doing anything other, Adam, than dumping risk large scale on business, the risk of migratory spend for preparing for something that doesn't happen or the risk that government isn't completely ready? Do you get a sense that government is alive to those concerns? And well, if, if you look at the history of UK government over the past 10 years or so, there has been a penchant for risk transfer from the public to the private sector in, in so many different fields. And unfortunately, when we do look at some of the issues around Brexit and you look at some of the technical notices, that yeah. does continue. So if you look at some of the arrangements under trade, for example, uh, there are three or four pages of requirements that say businesses will need to do A, B, C, and D. It's very easy to set out the process, but what we then have in firms all around the country are questions about whether they have the staff resource with the expertise, as Pauline was saying, to be able to carry that out, what the cost of each of those steps will be to them, and what the impact will then be on their margins at precisely the point in time when many of their customers are telling them, hold your prices or we'll go elsewhere. So what you're seeing is a squeeze in a lot of firms around the country coming from some of these potential requirements. So there is a concern there. 
how do you mitigate it, though, is the question. If those procedures are required under WTO rules and international law in the event of a no-deal scenario, this isn't going to be the place to mitigate it. You need some kind of balancing measure elsewhere. And I think if there's one big criticism I would have of the government as Brexit dominates all of its bandwidth, is that there is not sufficient attention to mitigating measures to fix the fundamentals here in the UK and help businesses grow. So the mood music at the moment is, where are we going to increase taxes to pay for the NHS pledge? when what we should be talking about is how are we going to reduce costs and burdens on businesses to give them the breathing space that they need in order to deal with these new requirements of Brexit. Where are the incentives that keep the investment flowing rather than have the investment pause whilst people spend money on process rather than on capex and productivity? Those are the kinds of questions that we need to see answered. You know, the Chancellor's going to step forward. Who knows what date it's going to be? We've all been waiting for quite a long time. It looks now like it's later towards uh, uh, in November. Um, it's going to step forward with a budget. And that budget has got to address some of these issues about what the mitigating measures are going to be as businesses have to go through this process. And Sally, what's the role? Um, I know some sort of trade associations have seen their role as helping their members sort of you know, intermediating between government, particularly when government was in its sort of slightly Trappist mode of not saying very much. I mean, so what's the role that you are playing with your members in getting them ready? I think, you know, as a lobby group, we have a responsibility to help our members to firstly understand the multitude mm. of scenarios that are possible. Um, and they're pretty baffling for those of us that are sort of well-versed in public policy, let alone for a smaller business that's incredibly time-pushed, time-strapped right now. So everything from sort of the extreme end of a no-deal with no transition period, potentially an FTA, a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement, checkers, EA, other forms of arrangement, perhaps around the Switzerland model, they're all possibilities right now because there is such a huge degree of uncertainty about where we're going to end up. So we have a role in trying to explain to our smaller business businesses in practical terms what some of those scenarios might mean. Now a no-deal scenario with no transition period or potentially also a free trade agreement would potentially result in customs declarations and safety and security declarations needing to be completed. That's a big change for those of our smaller businesses that are trading with the EU and particularly for that cohort of smaller businesses that exclusively trade with the EU and just don't have experience of rest of the world trade. Um, so we have responsibility, first of all, to help them to understand those scenarios, but also to take the material that's coming out of these technical notices and make it digestible mm. to them. So where there is good news, and we've pointed out the postponed mm. VAT accounting, mm. both for the EU and for mm. the rest of the world, also on um, personal data protection, there are areas where the UK government is acting unilaterally. Mm. So for our smaller businesses that want to export mm. personal data to the EU, mm. Um, you know, that is going to be permissible. The problem is the other way back. You know, there's no adequacy agreement that will allow EU businesses to be able to, or EU entities to be able to transfer their data to the UK um, because they say that an adequacy agreement can't be agreed until the UK is the third party. Um, so there, what kind of practical help can we provide to take, you know, what is a relatively vague statement in that technical notice, which is think about putting a model data protection clause into your contracts. How can we sort of help them to 
translate that into actual action. Yeah. But the reality is, and we've surveyed our members yeah. on this, that um, for those of us smaller businesses that do feel that they would be impacted um, by a no-deal disorderly scenario, at least a quarter of them would be looking for some form of export voucher or tax credit or you know fiscal support to yeah. help them if the time comes for them to actually take action and to expend money, whether that's developing relationships with intermediaries, uh, whether that's investing in new software. And with the budget coming up, I would just echo Adam's point very strongly. Um, our confidence index, which has been published today, shows now for the only the third time since 2013, um, small business confidence is in negative territory. Um, and that is because the um, uncertainty of Brexit, along with the rising cost of doing business, is now weighing on small business sentiment. So this budget is a really important moment for the Chancellor to shore up smaller business confidence in particular. Um, otherwise, the impact for longer-term productivity will be severe. So any budget reps from either, since we're you know, taking our bids for the budget, Anything you want to see in the budget? Absolutely. Business rates critical. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen a sort of large number of, uh, of companies experience difficulty on, on the high street. So action on business rates, if there is mm. more fiscal room, uh, is absolutely critical to save our high streets. Uh, we think that's absolutely key. Um, I think that, that issue about, um, you know, VAT has still mm. got to be resolved because... Um, you know, potentially there is a, a VAT bombshell for consumers mm. as well. I mean, one of the things that was in mm. the technical notices mm. uh, was that if someone is buying, for example, a good online and it comes from a supplier mm. from Germany or Italy, mm. the consumer is going to have to pay VAT on the transit costs and on the handling charge. Mm. So we worked out that on sort of a £180 food processor, one might, one might buy online coming from a supplier in Germany, there's an additional £9 in tax and customs duties on a no-deal Brexit. Now, that's something with you know, the CPI mm. rate uh, at 2.7% mm. that consumers can ill afford. So we need a resolution on all of the Brexit mm. VAT issues that mean that not just businesses but consumers don't get clobbered with extra tax because of Brexit. Pauline, any sort of immediate concerns that the government could well, give to Philip Hammond? I, I think we, we fear, of course, that because there will be a need for a lot of spending, Brexit-related spending from, from government, that there's a risk they might decide to raise taxes. Mm. Um, and we're worried about potential increase in the fuel duty, for instance. Um, so we would say, you know, this is, we understand it's a tricky situation because mm. you've got to offer incentives, mm. uh, pay for new personnel, mm. think about, you know, all these changes and, and <laughs> while at the same time not trying to raise taxes or, uh, but business will be already overloaded by costs, red type uh, changes and, you know, of course, I mean, the, the cost of transport mm. uh, might have to, might have to mm. raise, uh, the cost of employment maybe will have to raise. I mean, there are, you know, everywhere we look, uh, in, at least in the short term, it's all about cost, cost, cost. So, frankly, trying to raise taxes at this time would be a massive mistake. Okay, so if anyone's watching in the Treasury, that was the brief budget outtake. So what I'm going to do is go to your questions. I've got some more questions here, but let's see if anyone in the audience wants to... We've got Adela with the mic, so let's take them in groups. So we'll come here, and then there, no, yeah. Tell us who you are. Andrew Kahn, I'm a governor here at the Institute. Um, I was 
I'm Chief Executive of UK Trade and Investment, and I'm um, a non-executive board member of a number of companies. Joe Owen set out very clearly the, um, the ways that our government has uh, not provided adequate information to business uh, because of political constraints. I wanted to ask the panel how far you thought the, we had some of the same problems because continental governments and the Commission are also constrained. I mean, in the financial services sector, where, where I now operate, uh, we know that the Treasury is trying hard to uh, provide clarification, and bodies on the continent, like the ECB, uh, various regulatory agencies, are, are reluctant, probably under instructions from uh, the Commission, not to do anything. So although you know, nobody wishes to blame the British government as much as me, nevertheless, aren't, isn't there also a political problem coming from the other side of the fence? Okay. Yes. Here, and then we'll go there. Yeah. Thank you. Paul Hodges from uh, Ready for Brexit. Uh, over the last year, we've been building a website specifically to help SMEs, and we've had eight people with experts in the field building a Brexit directory, which answers, I think, a lot of the questions around where can we go for concrete knowledge. And one of the things we found, uh, and I think this makes, I completely agree with what the panel have been saying, is the wealth of material on the internet is enormous. And what our team of eight have been doing over the last year is going to all sorts of sources, 90% of which are rubbish, 10% of which, like the personnel site workers, or the FSB site, or the, so on, have absolute nuggets and trying to pull all that together. And so my question is really, how can we work together? We've only got perhaps six months. How can we work together to uh, make this available to everyone? Okay, good question, and then... Hello, uh, Emily Wallace, um, G Plus. We're a um, European Public Affairs Communications Agency. Um, I think this is a really interesting snapshot in time, but if we can jump forward two months, when hopefully we'll have greater clarity and certainty about um, what is actually going to happen March 29. Um, do we think, and if, as a comms professional, the government's got a huge comms job on its hand to then begin with clarity and certainty to get business, as well as everyone else, ready for Brexit. How prepared do we think government is for that huge communications job? In some ways, it's understandable that, they, that that has been lacking without clarity and certainty, but I worry that not much thinking has gone into at the point when we know what the deal looks like, how we then go ahead and actually get, get business ready. Thank you very much. I'm going to brigade that with uh, a bit with Paul's question, actually. But let's start off with this point that Andrew is doing, that the British government's a bit um, hamstrung by politics, but actually the EU notices that they put out in January were all incredibly dry and just said the UK will become a third country, this means whatever. We've seen some things from the continent. There was a thing, I think, published two days ago from the Deutsche Aktion Institute, which was saying, basically, uh, both sides need to start talking because this isn't going to work and there needs to be conversations between customs authorities yes. and you know regulators and stuff because actually it's yeah. in no one's interest yeah. for this to go into meltdown hiatus or whatever. So what what do you think of the sort of quality of what's coming out of in, in Europe? Is it you know, is Europe sort of as uh, as hamstrung as we are? Are they saying sensible things? What are you yeah. getting for your you know people who do business yeah. there? And, 
Well, what are they saying to their governments about what they need? We have both businesses who are operating in other European states and, of course, a network of chambers of commerce, national chambers of commerce in some of the other countries. We actually have an alliance of the national chamber of commerce bodies in the UK, the Republic of Ireland, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, because, and Denmark, because that group of states is 70-75% of UK-EU trade, so very much focused on the practicalities. Andrew's point is, is absolutely right. I think a lot of the agencies in those countries have been constrained, and I don't know whether that's for political reasons or otherwise, um, but we have been urging much more dialogue between HMRC, for example, and French, Belgian, and Dutch customs agencies in particular, because of the intensity of the traffic, and Pauline, you see this as well, the intensity of the traffic. There's also a bit of arbitrage going on at the moment between the commercial operators in those three countries. You know, Rotterdam and the Dutch ports and the Dutch customs authorities investing quite heavily to try to be ready and actually get business that might have gone somewhere else previously, whether it was Zeebrugge or Calais. Uh, so there, there are some very real issues in that for us. I am worried about that. It's not just customs. Civil aviation is another area where collaboration between national agencies would be extremely welcome so that we can start to get our airports, which are incredibly important economic operators in the regions of the UK, able to continue to provide services as well. So I think there is a serious issue there. We are working as a Chamber of Commerce network, both in the UK and on the continent, to try to break through it. The message to the politicians is, this is a practical and technical issue. You could agree any shape of deal that you want between now and, as Emily was saying, in November, but this cooperation, this communication, the identification of the key contacts on both sides and those initial discussions needs to be happening immediately. Okay. So it's a real push. Yeah. Pauline, do you get a sense that, I mean, you know, across the continent, is there a similar push from so operators to actually say, you know, because we've heard that, you know, the commission negotiating team has given a pretty clear thing to member states to tell their agencies that, you know, there is only one person who negotiates and that is, you know, the Task Force 50 and there aren't to be lots of side conversations, however useful that might be. I think I might well be the only one based on the continent yeah. uh, here. So uh, in terms of the discussions that have been going on, I mean, you have to realize that this process in the capitals is managed by the top level. Mm. So these customs officials, these transport officials, mm. it's not that, you know, Michel Barnier is telling them don't talk mm -hmm. to the Brits or, or, or whatever, although that might be going on. It's there internally, of course, within their own governments, they are being told, well, no, this process is handled like that. And it's, it's a strategic, I mean, again, and it's, they're facing, I guess, the same difficulties as the UK uh, team, really, is that they've got to in parallel, try to negotiate, keep a bit of a poker face and try to play their cards in the best possible way, while at the same time trying to prepare for all possible eventualities, including uh, a new deal that would come really, really soon. So there have been some discussions, but they are very, very limited. Uh, we've had discussions uh, directly with a number of governments uh, in, in, in Europe. Uh, we're talking to the task force. We're talking to the task force in the council. We're talking to uh, the preparedness uh, units in the commission to some extent. And a big part of the, of, the, of the job, I guess, is to feedback questions and practical concerns and worries, because otherwise it will never get discussed. Um, but one, one big problem I see is that this seems to be sometimes taken a bit lightly. They need to really prepare for that. or. Uh, so there's, there's sometimes a lack of understanding of what the implications really might be on the ground. So if you take customs, uh, I don't know, in France there's 
of course, a big focus on you know Le Havre, Charles mm -hmm. de Gaulle, uh, which handled mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. trade with the uh, rest of the world. But actually, the routes that are being used would be Dover-Calais, Dover-Dunkirk, uh, Eurotunnel, um, and the practical constraints there mean that whatever would work on trade for the rest of the world may not practically on the ground work uh, for, for these specific routes. And one, one other example I would give you where it's not helpful to have um, <coughs> ministries talking to each other, but essential, is transport, uh, because we have two ways of managing this. Either the EU decides at some point that the Commission should handle this and negotiate side deals, but we think it's not likely. Uh, that's at least what they've been telling us and the general public. Um, or we start with bilaterals on transport. It's not what we want. It's definitely not our preferred option. But between that and nothing, we've got to be realistic. Um, because so, there were these stories that Chris Grayling was trying to open up negotiations on aviation deals with 27 member states. And road holders. Yeah, and that's true. Uh, that's true, and um, you know, to some extent, I mean, road haulage especially used to be managed like that bilaterally mm. for a very long time. Uh, now it's a competence of the EU, uh, but the worrying thing is if the Commission will not negotiate anything bilaterally with the UK in the event of no deal, and they won't let member states do that, so how are we going to cope? Because that means that trucks wouldn't be able to cross the border. That means that planes wouldn't be able to cross the border. And it's just not realistic or feasible uh, to, be, to be in that situation. So I think what we've heard is that for the continent, they've got a sort of November, December deadline of when they are going to look at you know, the implications of, of New Deal in more detail. But uh, frankly, they should be starting to think about it now, and there should be more discussions. And it needs to be with the task force in the room. But these practical discussions have to take place and it's not a threat to the negotiations, it's just common sense to mitigate the worst outcome of a no-deal Brexit. So William, I want you to ask you that there's been a criticism of the technical notices about the way they deal with Northern Ireland and Ireland and the fact that they might say, look at the Irish government website mm. or mm. just a slightly silent mm. on Northern Ireland and Dominic Raab's uh, been pressed on whether there's going to be a specific notice on Northern Ireland, which obviously, you know, if these are sensitive, that's super sensitive. But I just wondered, you know, because a lot of your businesses actually operate North and South, don't they? I mean, how do they feel those sort of preparations are going? What messages are they getting from the Irish government? What sense do they get that there's any sort of informal communication lines being opened across the border? Uh, so we've had discussions in Dublin with the mm. Irish Agriculture Ministry mm. and within the boundaries that are set by mm. the Article 50 mm. process, there have been some discussions between the UK government and the Irish government uh, around things. But I don't expect that we're going to see serious discussions mm. with member state governments until it's clear in November, hopefully not, uh, the, but the, there can't be a withdrawal agreement. I think you're right to point to the particular strain this puts on companies that are moving goods, particularly meat and dairy, uh, between North and South. I don't know if people in the room are aware, but in terms of EU rules, um, goods, meat goods coming from a third country can only enter the EU's territory through a border inspection post. 
There are no border inspection posts on the Irish border currently. None. Zero. So there is no, there is no place right now, uh, if it's a no-deal Brexit, uh, for meat products coming from producers in the north to reach retail stores in the south. And I think if um, you know, we did see a breakdown and no withdrawal agreement, that's something that would have to be addressed urgently. But I think the fundamental message, Jill, from companies that operate on a, a Great Britain and Ireland basis is, for goodness sake, get us to the transition. If we get to the transition, we get two years where we can work out some of the specifics and details if there is to be a change in customs and regulatory changes thereafter. Adam wanted to come in quickly on Ireland. Just very quickly, the obsession with just the border uh, actually means you divert attention away from what for business by volume and value is far greater, which is the east-west trade across the Irish Sea. And actually, it's Dunleary to Holyhead, Rosslea to Fishguard, you know, the Roro Port at Holyhead. Those are where the real issues are for quite a lot of companies. So the political issue is definitely north-south, but the economic issue is even greater east-west. So I want to come to Joe and Sonali about this, this point Pauline made about uh, communication. So Joe. Is government ready to scale up its communication effort? Well, I think you talk about at the end of the transition, giving business the communication uh, required to be ready. But there's a step before that, which is the negotiations, right? And the detailed negotiations that are going to start after March next year. And there's a question about what is the engagement role of business in that? How is government actually going to speak to not just business, but NGOs? during that negotiation. If this was in the US, they've got 28 advisory councils, mm. 700 advisors who get to see texts mm. while they're negotiating, mm. and there's a very detailed process for engagement. What is that process going mm. to be when we get into the nitty-gritty of the future relationship talks? Now, if the government can front-load some of that engagement with business, it probably makes the back end slightly easier because they're not just bringing a text out of a box mm. and saying, you need to be ready for this in however many months' time. So I think that's the first big question is the negotiations, mm. people, uh, I think the big challenge on engagement actually is that rather than what happens at the end of the transition. And then the end of the transition, yeah, I mean, You've got 21 months, right, as an implementation period during which we have to negotiate. If you look at how long business was given for automatic pension enrolment, some businesses were giving six years to prepare. We've got 21 months to negotiate and then potentially implement a new agreement. I think when there was a change at the border in 2011, 2012, uh, around the import control system where there was needed to be entry summary declarations, so just a kind of additional mm. piece of paperwork, and businesses in the UK were given 18 months from the point at which government had done its implementation and said, this is the system, you can work your way around it and we'll start to enforce it in 18 months. So I think um, yeah, time so, <laughs> is so probably a bigger challenge than actually just spreading out the communication. So tonight, at some point, we get a degree of certainty. We can take a scenario off the table. Um, you've got your businesses going along thinking, I'm just you know, living day to day, whatever, managing the rates that are too high and worrying about this and that. 
actually, what, does, what would a good communications effort from government to wake up, you know, get Adam's ostriches to pull their head out of the sand, to get your businesses sort of really saying, yeah, I now know I have the information I need in the place I need and the form I need, and I know I need to be aware of it. What, what would that look like? What do you advising Alex Aiken, who's the head of government communications? What's, what should he be investing in getting business you know, geared so, up? So I think there are probably two key principles. Mm. One is that communication will need to be targeted to particular subsets. So just let's assume, you know, hypothetically, um, a deal is struck um, and there's going to be a new kind of customs arrangement, the facilitated customs arrangement that's been discussed as part of the Chequers proposal. Well, that is a change um, for uh, potentially for smaller businesses. It won't mean customs declarations um, by any means and it won't mean um, routine rules of origin checks. But in the future, if a smaller business potentially wants to take advantage of preferential UK tariffs if their good is ultimately going to be consumed in the UK, they will need to prepare for that scenario, whether that's two or three or four years down the line of actually sort of materialising. Now to do that, there are, there's targeted communication that needs to come out from government to those businesses that are actually trading with the EU or thinking about trading with the EU um, and the wider rest of the world, um, so it's got to be segmented, but also there has to be a real world awareness that the people that smaller businesses will go to for practical advice won't necessarily be, you know, gov.com. Um, there are a plethora of accountants, of lawyers, of local ecosystem actors that a smaller business will continue to take trusted advice from. Um, lobby groups are part of that for our members. So there's a wider, uh, you know, range of actors that will need to be influenced, that will need to understand the fundamentals so that they can advise smaller businesses when they approach them um, about how to take advantage of changes, of future opportunities, or how to mitigate against risks. And if you were saying to government, actually, you did it really well on this, is there a, you did it really well on this I think, example? I think that pen, you could start? pensions auto-enrolment um, in terms of, you know, the way that that was yeah. communicated to businesses, the way it was phased, you know, is a case is a case in point. Okay, so but this is far far more complex because this is across is, a indeed. multitude of scenarios. So, Joe just quickly raised this point of actually how business feeds in not to whatever gets agreed on withdrawal, which is relatively easy and relatively for government apart from the Ireland bit. Um, actually, how does business want to feed in? How, you know, what do you think good engagement on the future relationship is going to look like, Pauline? Well. <laughs> I'm sorry to be the particular here, but uh, we, we're talking about things like transition, as if it were a certainty or almost certainty. Okay, so where's the solution on the Irish border? Because, and these are clearly not my, my, my words, but I, I have to listen to what Michel Barnier and you know, other governments are, are telling, both publicly and to us as well. Uh, if this is the absolute condition to have a transition, well, the likelihood of a transition is based on the likelihood of finding a suitable option that pleases everyone on the Irish border. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes have trouble seeing the, end, the, the light at the end of the tunnel uh, on that one. Um, so we're all assuming that there will be at least 21 months, which, by the way, is extremely short, to get you know, proper consultation and so on. What we fear is that we're going to be potentially in a no-deal situation, there won't be a future relationship. It will be contingency, emergency, uh, getting something settled as quickly as we can, 
uh, with limited interactions between the UK government and other governments. And that's a scenario that at this point in time, unfortunately, feels you know, that it's a tangible possibility. And it worries us a lot more than how and whether we're going to be involved in the, in the, in the future relationship uh, negotiations. Maybe that's presumptuous. Maybe we just think that we have a good connection with government and they would involve us at, at that point. Uh, but you know, we have to focus on what is the biggest threat, the biggest risk at this point in time. Okay, um, I think we take Pauline's warnings to heart that we can't bank on it, but just to come back, Adam, if, if we get mm -hmm. into having a sort of proper negotiation on the future relationship, how would business like to be involved? Do you have a sense at the moment of how government plans to involve you? Well, my concern generally is that business involvement at the 30,000 foot level with senior ministers and permanent secretaries is quite good. Uh, but what we need for both the future arrangement with the EU and for future trade agreements is that helicopter level skimming of uh, all of the issues. We need to be in the detail, in depth. Um, someone mentioned, Joe, I think you mentioned a little earlier, the US model, where business is either in the room or the room next door whenever a negotiation is taking place. Businesses with specific expertise should be at the end of a phone line. Negotiators should be able to come out of a session and literally ring up a panel of businesses to say, look, this is what's been put on the table by uh, the opposition. Can you give us a view on it within the next hour before we go back into the session? Those kinds of mechanisms are still, I think, to be developed. I agree with Pauline's point that, that you need emergency measures as well as what would happen in an orderly situation. I think for colleagues from the business department in the room, one of the models that we need to look at if we do find ourselves in that unwelcome emergency situation is the task forces that sprang up around things like Rover, Carillion, and others, but on steroids. Much, much okay. bigger than that. Task Force on steroids. Let's go back for some more questions. We've got some more turning up. Let's go uh, to the back of the room there. And Adela, if you could go to here. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yes. Alan Lehman from the Management Consultancies Association. If you um, had written two articles for The Telegraph on this topic and you were trying to decide which one to <laughs> have published, uh, you might have a companion piece called uh, something like, Is Business ready to seize the opportunities of Brexit. Mm. And I just wanted to ask the panel if there was any evidence that from your organizations that people, the business could see opportunities, and, and if so, how they were responding to them. That was going to be my end question. That's very annoying. Anyway, thank you very much for asking that. Yes. David McLeod, I've run businesses in each of the major countries in Europe, one across Europe and a global business. Um, I'm very interested to know what the mood is amongst your memberships. As these pennies are dropping, are your memberships getting increasingly angry and frustrated and starting to think the unthinkable? Or uh, is there just a sort of sense of resignation? And my last point is getting ready for Brexit. If I was still running my business, anything other than the lightest, lightest Brexit, I would be putting all my investment in the EU, because at the end of the day, I'm responsible for my business, not for my country. Uh, it's sad, but that's the way it works. So let's be clear, if we come back with no deal or a hard Brexit, my investment goes to make sure that I can continue to honour my customers' needs, which means manufacturing and setting up uh, in Europe. And the human cost of what is emerging is beginning to get incredibly stark. Okay, yeah, and that. Paul Wallace, I'm a journalist. Um, 
Regardless of, well, regarding mm. the merit of the technical notices obviously mm. matters, but wouldn't it have been much better for them to have been uh, brought out much earlier? I mean, they're, they're very late in the day. Mm. And I just wonder whether you could comment on the respective roles of government and of business organisations such as your, the ones we have in front of us, because surely this is an area where, in particular for no-deal scenario, where, where the, the, the facts can be set out, probably with mm. greater... Uh, candor mm. than, than the government uh, is possible mm. for the government. Okay, I think it's a really interesting question. Of course, the EU set out their notices in January and as just the mirror images of the EU ones, but with a few decisions by government where they're going to take unilateral action, which I think is the interesting, interesting sort of added value from the government. Um, let's, take the, let's take the gloomy question from David first. Um, you know, What's the mood? Is the mood worried? Or maybe we'll merge the two, actually. Worried? Excited about the opportunities? Um, there's diversion if I'm supplying European customers. The Dutch are already saying you can't rely on uh, UK supply chain elements, so move your production over to be sourced on the continent. Equally, presumably, if you relied on EU imports here as part of a supply chain to survive, supply UK customers, there might be a degree of insuring, and I think we've seen a bit of evidence coming out of the northeast of some readjustment of supply chains in that direction as well, um, given the relative size of the markets. Those may not necessarily balance. Um, but what's the mood? William, what's the mood? I think there's a determination, but it's an increasingly grim determination um, <laughs> about trying to preserve the existing supply chains uh, because the products you know, are of uh, such a nature that consumers want to buy, whether that's a particular brand of Dutch mm. tomatoes or uh, you know, ensuring that we use Polish timber in our product because it's, uh, it's great for those, uh, those shelves and bookcases that we all like to put up. So I think companies are bending over backwards to make sure that they can, where possible, retain those supply chains because consumers want that quality of goods and they want that choice to be available. Um, in terms of the technical notices, I mean, in part they have been political documents, let's face it. I mean, they do have a, a sort of underlying political purpose, which is to say, this is what no deal looks like, and here's how it would play out for different sectors, and that's why they've had to be signed off at the very highest level, uh, and their, their publication staggered in terms of their importance as well. In terms of opportunities, the one thing I would say is that DIT have been much more proactive, uh, though this is something that could have happened mm. even if the UK had stayed mm. uh, an EU mm. member state. In terms of looking at the possibilities both for exporters, mm. I attended a very mm. good meeting in terms of export mm. opportunities in China mm. last Friday, and also in terms of looking at new markets for importers mm. as well. You know, using things like the unilateral mm. trading preferences, mm. the GSP, mm. perhaps a reformed mm. UK GSP. Mm. So I think the one positive, if it's possible mm. to see a positive uh, from all of this, is that DIT is working much more closely with companies to improve trade than I think was the case before. Sonali, 
Yeah, I think sort of it's important to distinguish here between sort of short term and long term. So in the short term, I think, you know, our survey data is clearly showing us that there's an uptick in anxiety. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is connected to concern about whether there is going to be a transition period or not. For smaller businesses, that's just absolutely mm. crucial. And that's mm. why when we, when we asked our smaller businesses the question about no deal, well, that can be a broad church. The way we defined it was a no deal with no transition period, because that would be the, you know, the ultimate scenario that would uh, cause mm. the most anxiety, distress and upheaval to smaller businesses. However, I think it is also really important to remember that our membership um, on the eve of the referendum was split 50-50. So the, if you reframe the question about well, what could the potential longer, ter longer term opportunities of, of, of Brexit be, um, a good chunk of our membership um, would talk about potentially uh, you know, new and ex new trading opportunities um, outside of the EU um, as being something that would be of real interest to them. Um, trade with the EU, our evidence and data shows, you know, is clearly far easier um, than it is with the rest of the world at the current moment in time. Um, but we've also been engaging with DIT on um, what potential opportunities there might be for new trading um, arrangements, agreements um, with countries like the US, with Australia, with New Zealand. Um, and the really critical um, point that we would make there, and, and this is clearly for hopefully discussions that will be taking place during a transition period, um, is that smaller businesses must have a voice, a genuine voice in those negotiations. However, those trading agreements, uh, whether they're with the EU, whether they're with non-EU countries, are structured. Uh, because you can have the most um, intelligent, cleverly designed, ingenious um, diagonal rules of accumulation in relation to rules of origin. Um, but if a smaller business can't really understand them and make sense of them, then they're not going to claim the preference. They're not going to take advantage of the preference that those rules actually provide. So one of our key lobbying asks is to talk for a dedicated small business chapter to be attached to those um, well, any future trading agreements going forward. And it is important to notice, just sort of quickly flipping back to the technical notices, um, it's not just about trade. Um, one in five of our smaller business employers have at least one EU27 member of staff. Um, and there's a, you know, the technical notice on EU citizens' rights is still outstanding. Um, and it's absolutely crucial from our perspective that um, employers and their staff, the EU27 staff, have certainty um, about what their position would be, their legal position would be, um, in the event of a no-deal scenario. So one of the possible sources of opportunity for Brexit, which I'm slightly surprised you didn't mention, Sonali, is the chance to liberate ourselves from EU regulations that we don't like. And I would have thought that was going to be relatively high up yeah, your uh, leave voting uh, members' wish list. But is that not, no, not there? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we support the Withdrawal Act. We think mm. it's really important that the same rules and regulations apply on the day mm. after we've exited the EU as apply the day before. Um, that's incredibly important. In terms of sort of the wider regulatory architecture, there is an opportunity to look again at mm. it once we've exited the EU. But an important balance mm. needs to be struck because our data also shows us that non-tariff mm. barriers, um, technical mm. barriers, issues to trade, um, various other, you know, rules of origin requirements, that those can be um, just as important a uh, factor in where a small business decides to trade um, as tariffs would be. So when we're looking at the regulatory mm. architecture, mm. we need to look at it in a really nuanced way. But yes, our membership do see this, a good proportion of our membership do see this as a, a way of 
looking again at whether we are doing the most that we can do to promote innovation, productivity, and particular areas to take the opportunities of the fourth industrial revolution and really sort of you know grasp mm. that and, and and to make it happen. But my last point, I wouldn't want it to be sort of said that you know we. Smaller businesses are anti-regulation by, by by no means. So there's an issue, I think, in terms of the cumulative amount of it and the quality of it, and a lot of enforcement issues um, uh, that come into play. Um, but often the purpose of a regulation is something that smaller businesses understand, and often it gives them um, a competitive mm. advantage. Adam, um, I think for businesses. What's worse than more or new red tape is massive change in the red tape you've already got. <laughs> and if you've already made the investment that's required in order to comply with a series of regulations, um, then actually the biggest burden that you can face in the short term is that someone throws all of that up in the air and you have to deflect attention from your product or your service towards regulatory compliance and changing your mechanism of regulatory compliance. So I'd agree with Sonali that in the long term there may be some opportunities in that space, but in the short to medium term it, it, it really it doesn't factor on my business's wish list. They actually want their regulatory base to stay more or less the same so that they don't have massive costs of compliance change uh, in order to, to, to deal with over the next couple of years. Uh, coming to David's question, I, I think there is a steely resilience amongst lots of businesses, but I think you're absolutely right to say that businesses will always look after the needs of the company P&L and the company balance sheet. That is their responsibility. It is their responsibility to themselves if they're a private company and to their shareholders if they're a public company to do that rather than to the national economy. And there is a disconnect between the two dialogues. One, with the dialogue that you see going on in, in the C-suite of a business on the one hand and the other which is going on in the boardrooms of Whitehall on the other where they say oh business will take rational mm. decisions but some of those rational decisions will be good for the UK no they're taking them because they're <laughs> rational decisions for the business themselves we do see a worrying number of companies who are saying to us that if a no-deal scenario is reached they will be investing elsewhere on the continent mm. rather than in the UK there is a real opportunity cost question that we need to look at here so when I said that a disorderly or a messy exit is of huge concern to businesses one of the potential consequences of that is around investment and recruitment strategies and where people decide to put their money um, to Alan's point though about opportunities um, the way that we as the UK sees the opportunities of change, I don't want to call it the opportunities of Brexit, I want to call it the opportunities of change, really is around really asking ourselves whether we have the services and the products that people want to buy around the world. We have hundreds and thousands of firms and chamber membership around the UK who tell us the reason why I'm successful in the US and China is because I have something my customers want to buy. Unfortunately, we don't have enough of those companies right now in order to drive our net trade position as a United Kingdom. So getting our products and services right, which means having the best possible business environment here in the UK, is the number one thing that we could do in order to seize the opportunity coming from change. Because it's those products and services that drive it. And if I have a frustration with the dialogue around this particular part of the world, is the notion that somehow actually it's the free trade deals that then drive the flow of business. It's the other way around, ladies and gentlemen. Good business then drives us towards wanting to improve market access conditions and getting deals with other countries around the world. My members trade hugely with the United States of America and quite successfully with the United States of America. Why? Their products and services are wanted. They are purchased. They are competitive. They're considered of great quality. We are considered people who are honorable in terms of our business dealings. That is what we need to be pushing and promoting right now. The deals will come.
but I, I don't think you should approach a deal with the Trump administration and a global type of free trade deal with the Trump administration when the only thing that they'll look at is the fact that the UK over the last decade has doubled its trade surplus with the United States. Leave well enough alone there. Focus on the market access issues we have around Brexit to make sure that we have good access to those markets and focus on the best possible products and services to be coming from this country for the future. But aside from the rhetoric about uh, trade deals with the US, do you share William's view that DIT's upped its game? Um, I, I think, I think that... Is DIT a plus out of Brexit? I think there is a really important uh, kernel coming out of this, which is this need to very aggressively promote... UK products and services around the world and we're working like others around the panel uh, in order to do that and I want to get to a day when I can take a business from Birmingham Chamber of Commerce to the British Chamber of Commerce in Bangkok in Thailand and I do have a British Chamber of Commerce on the ground in Bangkok in Thailand and be working side by side with the UK Department for International Trade in order to ensure that that business gets all the support it needs to break into and conquer the Thai market. Now there is a question to be asked of course which is if trade and upping our trade relationships is so important why is the budget that we are spending as a nation on trade going down year on year based on the last spending review settlement. Okay. Pauline, do your members see upside or downside? I think it's fair to say that it depends completely on the members. Um, so as with every big change, you always have losers and winners mm -hmm. in the process. So if you take uh, companies that are into warehousing, uh, <laughs> providing legal <laughs> advice, customs advice, <laughs> intermediaries, and I, you know, I hear laughter here, but yeah, I mean, for, 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 for them, there could be some opportunities indeed. However, in the short term, however, I want to stress, even for them, even for the larger, more sophisticated companies, uh, you still have a massive, massive issue, which is availability of skills. Um, if you take customs, for instance, uh, don't forget that, of course, we are trying to implement the Union Customs Code, uh, which is the sort of blueprint for customs on the EU side, uh, that there are going to be massive changes with the CDS system that will proceed declarations on top of all the changes coming with, with Brexit. Um, if you're talking uh, warehousing, so yeah, there might be some opportunities there, but again, there is a risk in terms of people and, and, and gaining access to enough people to, 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 to operate these warehouses. Uh, same, of course, with the domestic demand for transport. If there was more an accompanied transport, you need to find the drivers. Um, in terms of the trade deals, I think that's rather longer term because the priority for our members is making sure that, first of all, they can secure access to the markets where there are already positive mm. and, and, and relatively mm. um, simple access mm. conditions for. So uh, we've, we've heard about uh, GSP, so that's mm. for uh, developing countries. Mm. Um, so indeed, I mean, it, and it always amazes me how little knowledge there, there is in the general public about that, but there are already some really, really good access conditions for uh, exporters mm. from developing mm. countries into the UK and the rest of Europe through these schemes. So the priority is to make sure we can replicate that and do that. And we've had, in principle, um, a commitment to do that, but we'd like to see that turn into, into, into reality. Now, if you talk about other large blocks, uh, like the US, I mean, apart from, you know, whether you think it's realistic or not and the priorities of the Trump administration and so on, you cannot look at it in complete isolation because 
in these trade deals, you will have to have some chapters about some kind of regulatory alignment, or at least accepting certain, certain products that perhaps would not be acceptable for existing trade partners uh, in, the, in the EU. So it's a very careful and delicate balancing act between trying to get new markets, which our members all want, and you know, they see big opportunities there, without losing the ones they, they already have. I think it's, it's a very, ba you know, very basic problem for every business, generally, when you try to move into new markets, you want to secure uh, your core market first and make sure you don't lose it in the process because you risk having nothing at the end of the day. Mm. Um, but it's, it's not something where we have uh, very clear answers. And in terms of your question on regulation and regulatory simplification, uh, very early on, we asked the question to, to members, we're gonna probably ask again, uh, but there are certain parameters to take into account. So first of all, does business really want a bonfire of regulation? Interestingly, the answer so far has been no, because we're used to it, we've adapted mm. to the rules. Uh, we think that in some cases actually the rules are good and, 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 and protect us. Uh, and again, you know, the rules might be good for certain market players uh, as well. Um, so there is, in fact, little appetite to have a complete change of regulation because that would mean more red tape in terms of adapting to it uh, and so on. The other thing you need to look at is the implications for market access. There's one thing that the uh, EU 27 collectively uh, and Mr. Barnier are obsessed with. It's called level playing field. They put it you know, at every source, I mean, it's spread on everything. Uh, every time you talk about market access in any sector, it's, oh, yeah, 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 but level playing field. Um, so this is something that needs to be considered. You don't want to restrict your market access by deciding to go for certain simplifications that might or might not be essential uh, at the end of, of the day. Um, and of course there are international agreements as well that might, that might limit that. So regulatory simplification opportunities, yes, maybe, we can see certain areas where that might be good, but they will need to be handled in a very careful way and with a very, very careful analysis of what the consequences and the knock-on effects might be. Okay, Joe, I just want to go to Paul's question, which is basically saying that all these guys are a bit asleep on the job because they could have put out the equivalent of what the government's just done months and months ago to prepare their business for no yeah. deal. So was there any, actually, any government value added in these notices other than just doing... Could they just have translated the EU's notices from January into... In, yeah, they're in English anyway and just said from a UK point of view... This is what it means. Well, yes, yeah, I think there's there's value in knowing that everyone is planning on the same set of assumptions, right? And how government res responds affects how business responds, because unless the plans add up, you can end up with disruption. And that was one of the you know it's the big challenge with how uh, the question that Andrew made earlier about what's happening on the other side of the border. Unless both sides of the borders respond in a way that they know what's going on when you get to the uh, other side of the channel, then you can end up with disruption. And if all of the businesses involved in the supply chain or freight forwarders, customs handlers, don't know what government plans to do in a no-deal scenario, then how can they put out their own guidance? Because it's completely dependent on that. I think the, the question about couldn't this happen much earlier with government as well, I think, is, is valid. It's, it's worth saying a huge amount of work had been happening inside government. when. Um, the Cabinet Secretary signed off by the Prime Minister sent out planning assumptions basically for all departments to work on in March 2017. No deal was one of those scenarios. A lot of work was happening. In terms of publicly facing um, comments, I think 
the politics of January to March this year was all about transition. The position that government was putting was this is going to be smooth and orderly, we're going to secure a bridge to the future. Um, after that, you don't want to then say, we've agreed this transition, but here's all this scary stuff that might happen in March next year. So there was some sensitivity about that. And one of the things that we found from a piece of work that we did in, in June is that when we were speaking to uh, officials, there was real concern that actually, despite these planning assumptions that had been issued, plans across government wouldn't necessarily add up for no deal. Because, diff and you can see this played out in the press, that different ministers, different politicians have different views about what no deal means in practice, what side deal you might get here, what side, side deal you might get there, and also the relative likelihood. If you're planning on no deal next year, no deal in 2020, and a negotiated outcome, which all departments are, and that negotiated outcome could mean anything from checkers to Canada, you're going to prioritise your resource. You have to, I mean, even if there's 7,000 new civil servants, you can't do all of them uh, completely. So what we found is that trying to line up plans and ensure that departments were taking the same approach to each scenario was a massive challenge. The reason we've started to get much more commentary on no deal I think is just as much down to the political agreement at Chequers as it is the timeline that was in one of you know the statement that was issued at 5pm had the agreement to step up preparations for no deal. Um, you could say that the other reason is we're getting so close it needs to be done now but I think that was probably true this time last year as well. Um, so yeah I think the politics as I mentioned at the very beginning is a key determinant for how this has played out. Okay I just want to give our panellists, I know it's just after two so uh, apologies to anyone who has to, has to go but I just wanted to just go down the line very very quickly We've talked a lot about logistics, regulation, supply chain stuff. We haven't talked about people. And this week we had the Migration Advisory Committee report come out and give a picture of what a new migration system might like. Just to sum up, just go down the line, one, two sentences each. You know, would your organisation, your members be happy with a scheme that looked like the MAC in isolation UK migration scheme? William? Ooh, definitely not. The MAC would be a disaster for retail. Um, if you look at where we have 170,000 mm. EA nationals working in the industry in the UK, in terms of logistics, mm. distribution, getting the goods mm. on the shelves, satisfying the online orders, in places like London, mm. south and east of England, mm. it's approaching one in three. Uh, we aren't, simply aren't going to get the labour from elsewhere. The MAC would cut off low-skilled migration from outside the UK. That's not something that retail could bear. Okay, disaster for retail. Sonali? 95% of our businesses have had absolutely no interaction with the non-EEA points-based mm. system because of its complexity <laughs> and because of its cost. Uh, we welcome the reference to mid-skills. Mm. Uh, you know, we do want to see a lot more focus mm. in that space, but the current non-EEA points-based system is not fit for purpose. Pauline? The MAC report was definitely not giving us the answers we were hoping for. Uh, I think that there were a lot of restrictions that were implied uh, on immigration in the future, mm. uh, especially for those mm. what are considered low-skilled workers. We would say they are valued workers, mm. but you know they're considered low-skilled. Um, one practical issue about why, in some cases, it might be easier to recruit EU nationals rather than people from the rest of the world, simply the standards and qualifications. For instance, if you're a driver. Uh, you need to have the same standards and qualifications that would be needed to operate in the, in the UK. At the moment, they are the same for, for, for EU and UK uh, nationals, uh, not necessarily with the rest of the world. So this is very important. 
However, before we think about the future immigration policy, which is very important, the one thing we absolutely need is to make sure that those who are already in the UK can stay. Okay. Adam, final word. I travel from Cornwall to Inverness, Northern Ireland to Norfolk, and in every cardinal point of the UK, people is the number one issue. The labour squeeze facing businesses, and in particular geographies, it is a labour shortage, is very real. It exists at every level, low, medium, and high. So when we saw the MAC report, we saw it was giving with one hand and taking away with the other. The positives around things like lifting the tier two cap so businesses can get more skilled workers, but the notion that what the UK simply needs is very highly talented, brainy, and ultra high net worth individuals in order to succeed in the future is false. The notion that businesses trust the Home Office to simplify and lower the cost of its bureaucratic procedures is zero. And the biggest problem I have with the MAC report was the saying that, oh, well, a lot of the issues that business will have with this report can be mitigated if we just reduce the bureaucracy around bringing someone in under a, the tier two system or the points-based points system. Well, it currently costs businesses about 5,000 pounds to bring someone in from somewhere else in the world regardless of skill level, imagine extending that to just about every skills need out there. And if it's a family with dependents, it could be £15,000. That is a drag anchor on the economy. So the government's got to think very carefully before it takes up all of the MAC's recommendations. Okay, and we will be discussing migration as our two, uh, two Institute for Government events uh, on Brexit at the Labouring Social Party Conference. So if you're there, come and join us and discuss, uh, discuss that. It was hugely useful. Thank you, panel, very much for all your answers and for being so enlightening about where we are, where we need to get to and things like that. So if you'd all join me in thanking our panellists.